are doing Job, just getting a good run at it. We're all the way down to chapter 11. So this is the third of Job's friends that have tried to comfort him. And as I said last time, his friends think that they are doing good because Job is insisting that he hasn't done anything to deserve all the stuff that's come upon him. And the example I used last time is if you were to go into any church and say, wow, I've really been righteous this week. Haven't sinned at all. Really been good. Everybody would sort of look at you like, what are you saying? And so for Job to insist that he has done nothing to deserve what's happened to him, they are reacting just like good Sunday Christians would react. Oh, there, there must be something. I mean, nobody's righteous, and certainly you couldn't be entirely righteous, so there's got to be something that's going on that's caused all this. And of course, Job is going to continue to insist that there's not. So this week we've got Zophar. So I'm in chapter 11. Then Zophar the Neamathite answered and said, Should a multitude of words go unanswered, and a man full of talk be judged upright? Should your babble silence men, and when you mock, shall no one shame you? So what he's saying is, you're just sort of talking, and you're running over everybody else, and nobody can get a word in edgewise, and the fact that you've done doing so much talking doesn't make you right. Verse 4, For you say, My doctrine is pure, and I am clean in God's eyes. But oh, that God would speak and open his lips to you, and that he would tell you the secrets of wisdom, for he is manifold in understanding. Know that God extracts from you less than your guilt deserves. Obviously, the argument here is God is merciful, and the amount of suffering you're going through is, by definition, way less than you deserve. Now, there's a couple of fallacies with this. The idea that somebody who is part of the created order presumes to say what God can and cannot do is logically flawed. It is not logically possible for somebody inside of the creation to have the perspective of God and so say with certainty what it is possible for God to do. It just can't be done. What God gives us in Scripture is a couple of things. The first thing he gives us is the assurance that he loves us and that what he wants for us is for our ultimate good. The second thing he gives us in Scripture is this is how you get along in my creation. And those two things are really all that's said. He doesn't really say who he is in the sense that trying to define himself, because first off, he can't, not in the medium that he's got. He's dealing with a book, and he is the one who created everything, so by definition, the book is not going to be able to encompass all that God is. It just can't happen. So what he tells us is what we need to know. And the things we need to know, as I said, is A, he loves us, and he has our best interests in heart, even though from our local perspective it may not always seem that way. From his perspective, he, he does. And, and one of the things we said earlier, 
is what God is doing with Job is he is setting Job up to do him great honor. Now, Job didn't volunteer for it. And I don't know that if you'd asked Job, tell you what, Job, this is what's going to happen to you. But at the end of it, we're going to write an entire book of the Bible in your name. If Job knew that and he agreed, then his entire perspective would be different. So for Zophar to state with certainty, well, you've gotten far less than what you deserve, is presuming to understand God's perspective. And what I'm saying to you is you can't do that in any realistic sense. Now, why would he presume to know Job's guilt? I know me, and I look at all the scummy stuff I have done throughout my life, and I am eternally grateful for God's mercy. And I haven't gotten anywhere near the punishment that I would impose on somebody who did what I did. So the idea here is Zophar looks at his own life, and he can't imagine that Zob is any better than he is. So hence he's saying, what's happening to you, no matter how bad it is, is nothing like what you deserve. So he is projecting Job onto himself, and he is presuming to understand the mind of God. Both of those are fallacies. Now, the other thing that it says is there are degrees of sin. How many of you ever been to a revival meeting where the revival preacher has stood up and says, how many of you have ever told a lie? You're a sinner. The idea being that sin is sin. That's all it is, right? It's not true. There are degrees of sin. And God says so. And for that, I will take you to the New Testament. And I'm going to go to Luke chapter 12. So Luke chapter 12 and verse 47. And that servant who knew his master's will, but did not get ready or act according to his will, will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. Everyone to whom much is given, of him much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. So the idea here sort of goes along with my original thing. If you walk into any church in the world and say, boy, I've really been good this week. Hadn't sinned a lick. I've been really righteous. Everybody would look at you like, you've just committed a sin, a pride, right? And what Yeshua is saying is there are degrees of sinfulness. And so what Job is saying is what's happened to me is way above what I deserve. And that would again run counter to most of what you would hear in a standard Christian church. So with all that background, I'm now all the way down to verse 7. And this is still so far. Can you find out the deep things of God? Can you find out the limit of the Almighty? It is higher than heaven. What can you do? Deeper than Sheol. How can you know? Its measure is longer than the earth and broader than the sea. If he passes through and imprisons and summons the court, who can turn him back? For he knows worthless men. When he sees iniquity, will he not consider it? But a stupid man will get understanding when a donkey's colt is born a man. So the next time a donkey gives birth to a man, that's the time when the stupid will gain understanding, which is never. So what Zophar is saying is, for you to insist 
on your righteousness means that you are stupid. This, of course, will not sit well with Job. We'll get there in a minute. Now, all of this is by way of rebuke so far. Now what he's going to do is give what he believes is helpful advice. 13. If you prepare your heart, you will stretch out your hands toward him. If iniquity is in your hand, put it far away, and let not injustice dwell in your tents. Surely then you will lift up your face without blemish. You will be secure and will not fear. You will forget your misery. You will remember it as waters that have passed away. And your life will be brighter than the noonday. Its darkness will be like the morning. And you will feel secure because there is hope. You will look around and take your rest in security. You will lie down and none will make you afraid. Many will court your favor. But the eyes of the wicked will fail. All way of escape will be lost to them. And their hope is to breathe their last. So what he's saying is, if you repent, stretch out your hands to God, confess your sin, then all of this stuff will go away. But if you don't, the eyes of the wicked will fail, all the way of escape will be lost to them, and their hope is to breathe their last. In other words, if you don't get right with God, we don't have a come to Jesus meeting here, with you the comer, then your only hope is death. So now we're down to chapter 12. Then Job answered and said, no doubt you are the people, and wisdom will die with you. Everybody understand what that was? When you die, there's not going to be any more wisdom in the world. You are the wisest people in the world. And Job answered and said, No doubt you are the people, and wisdom will die with you. But I have understanding as well as you. I am not inferior to you. Who does not know such things as these? So what he's saying is, all of these platitudes you have spoken to me are all things that I also know. And, oh, by the way, I have considered them. Verse 4. I am a laughingstock to my friends. I who called to God and he answered me. A just and blameless man am a laughingstock. In the thought of one who is at ease, there is contempt for misfortune. It is ready for those whose feet slip. So what he's saying is, hey guys, you aren't hurting at all. Real easy for you to condemn me from your position of what you believe is security. And, oh, by the way, I'm just as smart as you are, and I don't use as much about the scriptures as you do, and I've considered all these things. Verse 6, the tents of robbers are at peace, and those who provoke God are secure, who bring their God in their hand. So what he's saying is, what you've just told me is God punishes wickedness. And what I'm telling you is I know wicked people, and they are just fine. The tents of robbers are at peace. And those who provoke God are secure. People who worship idols don't get stuff like this dumped on. So your syllogism that God punishes wrongdoers, you're being punished, therefore you're a wrongdoer, fails because God doesn't always punish wrongdoers. Because I know lots of wrongdoers who haven't been punished. Verse 7. But ask the beasts and they will teach you. The birds of the heavens and they will tell you. Or the bushes of the earth, and they will teach you. And the fish of the sea will declare to you. Who among all these does not know that the hand of God has done this? So in the same spirit as I call heaven and earth as witness, he's saying even nature 
will tell you that God's hand has done this. Verse 10. In his hand is the life of every living being and the breath of all mankind. Does not the ear test words as the palate tastes food? Wisdom is with the aged and understanding in length of days. So what he's saying is, first off, everybody's life is in God's hands. And I'm no different than anybody else. My life is in his hands too. But I have also attained wisdom because of my age. This goes back with, you're giving me all this advice and you're telling me stuff I know. And you're telling me stuff that I know that does not apply to me. Verse 13, with God are wisdom and might. He has counsel and understanding. If he tears down, none can rebuild. If he shuts a man in, none can open. If he withholds the waters, they dry up. If he sends them out, they overwhelm the land. With him are strength and sound wisdom. The deceived and the deceiver are his. This is all stuff that his friends would say to him in describing God. And Job is showing by this that he understands that just as well as they do. This verse 16. With him are strength and sound wisdom, the deceived and the deceiver are his, which is to say he has both good and bad. Verse 17, he leads counselors away stripped, and judges he makes fools. He looses the bonds of kings and binds a waist cloth on their hips. Now, what he's saying, and he will use several examples here, is the mighty on the earth are of no particular consequence to God. Just because you happen to be a king, or you happen to be a priest, or you happen to be a judge, and you happen to be something really important among men, doesn't mean that you are also really important to God. Other than going back to the general, he loves you, but that doesn't necessarily mean that he's impressed by your accomplishments. 17. He leads counselors away stripped and judges he makes fools. He looses the bonds of kings and binds a waistcloth on their hips. He leads priests away stripped and overthrows the mighty. He deprives of speech those who are trusted and takes away the discernment of the elders. He pours contempt on princes and looses the belt of the strong. He uncovers the deep out of the darkness and brings deep darkness to light. All of that is by way of saying, your human accomplishments do not impress God. But the other part of that is, the things that you think are hidden, he is able to bring to light. Remember on Shabbat, we were talking about the Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal, where you had the 12 tribes, six on each mountain, the Levites down in the middle pronouncing these curses on secret sin, and everyone says, Amen. What God says is the hidden things belong to him, the public things belong to us. So if we take care of public law and order, he will take care of the secret sins. And what Job is saying here is he is perfectly able to root out those things that men want to keep secret. 23, he makes nations great and he destroys them. He enlarges nations and he leads them away. He takes away understanding from the chiefs of the peoples of the earth and makes them wander in a pathless waste. They grope in the dark without light. He makes them stagger like a drunken man. The idea is human accomplishments don't particularly impress God. And the example I will use for this, by the way, the Neo-Babylonian Empire. God said to Israel, you haven't let the land have its Sabbath, so you're going to go into the exile for 
70 years worth of Sabbaths that the land did not have. Well, if you look at the secular history, Babylon was whistled up out of nothing, lasted for exactly 70 years, and then was destroyed by the Medes and the Persians. The Babylonian Empire only lasts 70 years because that's all God needed them for. Chapter 13. Behold, my eye has seen all this. My ear has heard and understood it. What you know, I also know. I am not inferior to you. So this whole thing started clear back up at the beginning of chapter 12, where he says, I'm not inferior to you, parenthesis, in knowledge. I know as much about this stuff as you do. So for you to lecture me on the obvious is a waste of bandwidth. And this whole riff in between where he has demonstrated his understanding of the character and the capability of the Almighty is by way of him saying, I know just as much as you do, see? And he recites off all of this wisdom stuff. It's all stuff you would read in Proverbs or in Ecclesiastes or someplace like that because that's a style of writing. But it is by way of him showing, hey, just as smart as you guys. I know just as much, if not more, than you do. So quit telling me Sunday school platitudes. As I've said before several times, this book would not have been written were not Job and his counselors wise and wealthy men. Because if this stuff had happened to some bum, you know, crack addict on the street, it would have never made scripture because it would be unremarkable. The thing that makes it remarkable is Job's position and his wisdom. That's the reason we're reading this. Besides which, God wants to do Job honor. Verse 3. But I would speak to the Almighty, and I desire to argue my case with God. As for you, you whitewash with lies. Worthless physicians are you all. Oh, that you would keep silent, and it would be your wisdom. In other words, at this point, there's something going on here, and your best course is silence because you really don't understand what's happening. And furthermore, you're not helping me any. So verse 5 again. Oh, that you would keep silent, and it would be your wisdom. Hear now my argument, and listen to the pleadings of my lips. Will you speak falsely for God, and speak deceitfully for him? Will you show partiality toward him? Will you plead the case for God? Will it be well with you when he searches you out? Or can you deceive him as one deceives a man? So what he's saying is, I have got, and he said this several times now, I would really like to stand in front of God and present my case. Now he is fully aware that the signature sign of somebody confronting either an angelic being or a pre-incarnate Yeshua is they go down like a sack of rocks. Book of Daniel. Being comes across there, everybody goes down, the being reaches down, touches Daniel, says, fear not, get up. When John is confronted with an angel, and he goes down, and the angel picks him up, you know, fear not, it's okay. And when the Annunciation happened, when they announced the birth of Yeshua, what's the first thing the angel said to the shepherds? Fear not. So Job is completely aware that were he to be given the privilege of standing in front of God, he would not be able to speak unless God allowed him to. The only way I'm going to be able to present my case is if Yeshua or an angel or somebody comes alongside me and lays his hand on me and says, fear not. 
because if I just stand there naked, I know how this is going to go down. And the other part of that is in verse 7. You, who is you? Zophar, will you speak falsely for God and speak deceitfully for him? Will you show partiality toward him? Will you plead the case for God? In other words, do you presume to be in the place of God's prosecutor speaking for him against me? That's what all that says. So now we're all the way down to verse 10. He will surely rebuke you if in secret you show partiality. Now, he's asking for a trial. He's asking for an audience with God to plead his case. And what he's saying is, so far, if you're going to be in this court, you have to be an impartial judge. It would not be proper for you to take God's part a priori in this court case. You've got to hear my side, and then you've got to make a just judgment. You can't just automatically take God's part. And, by the way, you are automatically taking God's part, and it isn't helping. So verse 10 again. He will surely rebuke you if in secret you show partiality. Will not his majesty terrify you, and the dread of him fall upon you? Your maxims are proverbs of ashes. Your defenses are defenses of clay. For Zophar to presume to speak for God is just that, presumption. And if he were in a position where he actually was confronted by God and were in a position to say these in the presence of God, he would go down like a sack of bricks. Verse 13. Let me have silence and I will speak, and let come on me what may. I am going to present my case, and however it comes out is how it comes out. Why should I take my flesh in my teeth and put my life in my hand? Not quite sure what that means. But the way we would describe it is you take your butt in both hands and you jump out of the airplane. That's how a paratrooper would say it. I think that's what it means, but I don't know that for sure. So 14 again. Why should I take my flesh in my teeth and put my life in my hand? Though he slay me, I will hope in him. Yet I will argue my ways to his face. I trust in the love of God. I trust in his justice. I am not being apostate. I am not cursing God. I am simply saying what's happening right now is unjust, and I want to talk directly to God about that. Let's pick it up at 15. Though he slay me, I will hope in him. Yet I will argue my way to his face. This will be my salvation, that the godless shall not come before him. So what he's saying is, if I can get into his court, I'm home free. Because he will not let the godless into the court. So if I get to the point where I'm standing in his court before him, that in itself is my salvation. Because he wouldn't bother with somebody wicked. Verse 17. Keep listening to my words and let my declaration be in your ears. Behold, I have prepared my case. I know that I shall be in the right. Who is there who will contend with me? For then I would be silent and die. If there was anybody that could say that I'm wrong, I would shut up and die. 20. Now here he's speaking to God. Only grant me two things, then I will not hide myself from your face. Withdraw your hand far from me, and let not dread of you terrify me. Remember I said that the signature behavior when somebody gets into the presence of a heavenly being is they lose consciousness. And so the first thing he's saying is, all right, 
One thing I ask is that I don't pass out when I do this. Take your hand off of me so that I'm able to stand and speak. And then verse 22, then call and I will answer. Or let me speak and you reply to me. Somebody needs to start this dialogue. Either you tell me what I have done wrong and I can answer you, or let me speak and please you answer me. 23. How many are my iniquities and my sins? Make me know my transgression and my sin. Why do you hide your face and count me as your enemy? Will you frighten a driven leaf and pursue dry chaff? The first question is, I don't know what I've done here. Tell me what I've done. And why are you counting me who loves you as one of your enemies? Why are you treating me worse than you treat your enemies? I'm one of yours. And then 25. Will you frighten a driven leaf and pursue dry chaff? What that saying is, God, you're using a hurricane to blow out a candle. Before your breath, I am as a driven leaf or chaff. You're using way too much horsepower here because I'm not able to stand up in front of you. I'm not able to stand unless you let me stand. So the fact that all this is blowing through here is way too much power for the situation. 26. For you write bitter things against me and make me inherit the iniquities of my youth. This also shows up in Psalm 25, which is David. And I'm going to go back to Psalm 25, verse 6. Remember your mercy, O Lord, and your steadfast love, for they have been from of old. Remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions. According to your steadfast love, remember me for the sake of your goodness, O Lord. Now, if you've been through biblical wisdom literature all, you recognize there's three kinds of fools. There's the Nabal, the young fool. Then there is the mocking fool, and then there's the hardened fool. Everybody starts off as a young fool. A young fool is just naive, hadn't had any experience, not particularly wicked, but easily led astray, easily influenced. So this idea of remember not the sins of my youth is, hey, I went through a period of being stupid. We all did. Don't count that against me, because that's just the way people are. That's what both David is saying and Job is saying here. Verse 27, You put my feet in the stocks and watch all my paths. You set limits for the soles of my feet. Man wastes away like a rotting thing, like a garment that is moth-eaten. So what he's saying is, I can't do anything when you are preventing me from doing it. It's sort of like the Israelites in the wilderness. You're going to be in the wilderness until God decides you don't want to go in the wilderness. And what Job is saying, I'm not getting out of this till you let me out. I understand that. Chapter 14. Man who is born of woman is few of days and full of trouble. He comes out like a flower and withers. He flees like a shadow and continues not. And did you open your eyes on such a one and bring me into judgment with you? Who can bring a clean thing out of an unclean? There is no one. Since his days are determined and the number of his months is with you, you have appointed his limits that he cannot pass. Look away from him and leave him alone, that he may enjoy like a hired hand his day. His life is something you give, something you take away. And if you turn 
your eye of judgment upon me, there's nothing I can do about it. And I'm not asking for anything except you take your hand off me. I'm not asking for restoration. Just take your hand off me and let me enjoy the rest of my days like a hired hand. I'm not even particularly asking for freedom. I just want to enjoy the rest of my days on earth. Verse 7, For there is hope for a tree. If it be cut down, it will sprout again, and that its shoots will not cease. Though its root grow old in the earth, and its stump die in the soil, yet at the scent of water it will bud, and put out branches like a young plant. But if a man dies and is laid low, man breathes his last, and where is he? As waters fail from a lake, and a river washes away and dries up, so a man lies down and rises not again. Till the heavens are no more, he will not awake or be roused out of his sleep. So you cut down a tree, and in the spring, the tree will start sending up shoots again. Man's not like that. When man dies, he goes down into shale, and he does not rise up again until heaven and earth pass away, which is, again, consistent with Revelation and the white throne judgment. What he's talking about is a second resurrection. Verse 13. Oh, that you would hide me in shale, that you would conceal me until your wrath be passed, that you would appoint me a set time and remember me. He said this before, I would really just as soon be dead at this point. And I would really just as soon you didn't think about me until it came time for the resurrection. 14. If a man dies, shall he live again? All the days of my service I would wait till my renewal should come. You would call and I would answer you. You would long for the work of your hands. So what he's talking about is God's love for him. After his death at the resurrection, God will long for the work of his hand. All of the generations that have gone into the earth, he will raise them up because they are the work of his hands and they are eternal. 16. For then you would number my steps. You would not keep watch over my sin. My transgression would be sealed up in a bag, and you would cover over my iniquity. So we're talking about the forgiveness of sins. But the mountain falls and crumbles away, and the rock is removed from its place. The waters wear away the stones. The torrents wash away the soil of the earth. So you destroy the hopes of man. So what he's saying is things that men regard as eternal are in your hands. And you are destroying my hope just as you erode away the mountains. And, oh, by the way, I can no more prevent that than the mountain can prevent being eroded. So the mountain is big and strong and powerful, but it is nothing before you, neither am I. 20. Him is, in this case, man. You prevail forever against him, and he passes. You change his countenance and send him away. His sons come to honor, and he does not know it. They are brought low, and he perceives it not. So his sons come to do him honor, and of course he doesn't know it from the grave. And then when his sons finally pass away, he doesn't know that either. Verse 22, he feels only the pain of his own body, and he mourns only for himself. Great poetry here, since I've got a couple of minutes. I started off this by saying it is logically impossible for us to understand God. The only thing we know about God is what he chooses to let us know about himself. And what he has chosen to let us know about himself is that he loves us. 
and he wants the best for us. He's also chosen to let us know how his universe works and how to get along in the world with minimum stress. God created us and he knows us. And if what we are, as created by God, is not sufficient, then it's God's problem. In other words, I should be able to figure out and you should be able to figure out with the God-given talent and desire that he has put in you what it is God requires of you and how to come into a relationship with him. You should be able to figure that out with what you have. You don't require the vision of an angel. You don't require anything supernatural there. He has given you what you need. Because if he doesn't give you what you need, then he would be unjust to condemn you for not doing it. It would be like if I told you, I want you to build a bridge, but I'm not going to give you any steel, I'm not going to give you any concrete, and then when I come back next week, there's no bridge, I punish you. The fact that you haven't built a bridge is not your fault. I haven't given you the materials to do it. If I give you the materials and you haven't built a bridge, then we have a problem. And it's the same thing with us. God has given us the bodies and the minds and the understanding that he put in us. He made us. And if what he has given us is not sufficient for us to get to him, then that's his problem, not ours. And oh, by the way, he has given us sufficient to get to him. But this idea that nobody can be righteous before God, Job is saying that's nonsense. He's given us a way to cover our sins, given us a way to repent, He's given us a way to come to him. He's given us a way to understand his love. He's given us a way to relate to him. He's given us everything we need. If he had not, then he would be unjust to condemn us for not doing it. So it is not the case that you need to be some spiritual superman or anything like that. A shepherd can do it. A fisherman can do it. Anybody can do it. He's given you everything you need. Please consider becoming a sponsor. Please visit crimsonthread.com purpose for an explanation of what we're doing and perhaps to become a sponsor. Thank you.